Today we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. We'll look at verses 12 through 20. Our aim this morning, our focus this morning is that we'll see this, that Christ is most exalted in us when we joyously rest in Christ despite our circumstances for the greater progress of the gospel. That Christ is most exalted in us when we joyously rest in Christ despite our circumstances for the greater progress of the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, And I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ is most exalted in us when we joyously rest in Christ despite our circumstances. And that for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul's greatest concern was the same as his greatest joy. The progress of the gospel. What Paul got greatest joy in in this life was seeing the progression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was also his greatest concern. And it was with great joy that Paul would map out his journeys. Which we can probably turn in the back of our Bibles and see. Paul would map these journeys out with thoughts of the progress of the gospel. However, Paul didn't have these unrealistic, romantic thoughts that everyone, everywhere that Paul came in contact contact with would joyously receive the gospel and that everything would be seamless and easy. As a matter of fact, we see the combination of these two things that I speak of in Romans chapter 15. Verses 18 through 22, we see Paul trying to map out these journeys because he desired to see the gospel progress. And we see that it didn't always work out the way Paul intended for it to. Romans chapter 15, verse 18 says this, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. That's the progression of the gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 19, In the power of signs and wonders and in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. 
And then listen to what Paul writes to the church in Rome. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. Paul wanted to go to Rome, but he was prevented. He even speaks later in that text in, in Romans chapter 15 of his desire to go to Spain. But he wasn't allowed to do that either. So Paul had this great vision of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. But we know often Paul was stopped at this city or that. And his plan to go to this city was changed and he was supposed to go this direction. Two things that I want you to see in Romans 15. Paul's ambition to see the gospel progress and the the unpredictability of actually going where Paul planned to go next. Paul also knew what would await him in every city. Except for the city of Berea, Paul faced some level of persecution in every city that he stopped to preach the gospel in. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll see Paul, one city after another, receive 39 lashes, stoning, imprisonment, all these different things Paul would face because he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So missions to Paul, the progress of the gospel for Paul, was not romantic. We find Paul pinning this letter to the church in Philippi that we are studying together now. Paul was most likely chained to a Roman soldier in prison for his preaching of the gospel. So I want us, as we come to the text today, to be very aware of Paul's circumstances that we're about to read about. Here, Paul's great desire, as he writes this letter, was to see the progress of the gospel among the souls of men in Philippi. Look with me again at the text. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So in all Paul's plans, his mapping out of his journeys, God never promised Paul that it would be without difficulty or without opposition. So when Paul says that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, there's a lot that goes into that statement. So the first thing that I want us to see this morning is this, and we'll we'll spend a lot of time here. What the progress of the gospel look like. What What the progress of the gospel look like with Paul. And I believe that we need to make a distinction between great progress, which Paul had plans for, and greater progress, which God had plans for. As great as Paul's plans may have been to go to Spain or to this city or to that city, God ordained circumstances in Paul's life that he would not have ordained for himself. That would so cause his faith to increase that would so cause others to believe and that would lead to the greater progress of the gospel, as Paul writes in verse 12. Some might have viewed Paul's circumstances as a sign that he was disobedient to God. These things just keep happening to Paul, and so maybe he's doing something wrong and God's trying to get Paul to stop. Or that his ministry was coming to an end. But Paul saw it for what it was. The greater progress of the gospel. If the book of Job has taught us nothing, shame on us. But if it's taught us anything, it should at least have taught us not to pass judgment on why God has ordained such 
difficult circumstances for some. Even now in this room, as I look around, and I know some of you situations better than others, God has ordained more difficult circumstances in some of your lives than he has others. And for what reasons, we, we, we probably will never know until we see Christ face to face. But I know that many of you in this room had a much more difficult childhood than I did. Things happened that I can't explain. I know for some of you, you come from broken homes. Others don't. Some of you had difficult backgrounds with drugs and other things. Some of you didn't. For whatever reason, the circumstances in your life have turned out the way that they have. Here's what we do know. If we, like Paul, would trust in God, we know that they've turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The book of Job has taught us this. That God ordains difficult circumstances for some. And Paul was one of those men. The greater progress of the gospel is what Paul prays for. It's what he had prayed for. It's what he lived for. And it's what he had come to expect in his life. Paul expected to be used for the greater progress of the gospel. Not just the great progress of the gospel, but God's greater progress of the gospel. And I want you to see that because of Paul, because of the progression of the gospel through the ministry of Paul, there were conversions. We see that right here in this book. We see that the greater progress of the gospel progressing in the forms of conversion. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment, that's his current circumstance, in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Paul's imprisonment had become well known to the prison guard. Did you catch that? That it had, it had become well known to the whole Praetorian Guard. Now, I do this every week. God's word is very intentional. So when it says the whole Praetorian Guard, it means the whole Praetorian Guard. Now, I couldn't find what the number is on the Praetorian Guard. I don't know how many guardsmen were in the palace. I don't know what the number is. But what I do know is, whatever the number is, all of them knew that Paul belonged to Christ. That he'd been imprisoned, not just for the cause of Christ, but had been imprisoned to Christ. Paul was a notorious prisoner. Not fuming with anger and rebellion toward Rome, but teeming with love and devotion to Jesus. Without a doubt, the prison guard had tested Paul, waiting for him to finally break, to say the wrong thing, to, to lash back, maybe under the strain of such poor conditions, chained, his loss of privacy, immobility, and his mistreatment, that Paul would crack. But Paul never wavers in his commitment to proclaim Christ with joy in his heart. As a matter of fact, the prison had become the new mission field. And each Praetorian guard, Paul viewed as a lost soul who needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul was salivating with prospect of preaching the gospel to these men. Here he is in prison. And what Paul sees is a great opportunity to preach the gospel. He has these men chained to him. Most people would say, I'm chained to these guards all day, every day. 
Paul says, these men have to be chained to me. They have to hear the gospel. What an opportunity that Paul saw in his imprisonment. Paul had great evangelistic fervor. Grace Church, let me ask you. Where is our hunger for lost souls? Where is our hunger for lost souls? The advance of the gospel, like Paul, should be our lifelong passion. Is Christ our passion? Is Christ really our passion? I know we like to say it because that's good lingo here at church. It's fun to say to one another that Christ is my life, that he's our passion. It's it's guaranteed to get you a pat on the back here at Grace Church to make statements like, well, I'm gazing at Jesus. Are you looking at him? And I'm not discouraging those things, but I want us to think about the reality of what I'm asking. Is Christ our passion? Is the gospel our passion? Or is our passion something else? Like a new home. Or our appearance. Or our likability. Or our pocketbooks. Or what about sports? Or a career? Or maybe even our children are our greatest passion. My question is, is Christ your greatest passion? Is the progression of the gospel of Jesus Christ your greatest passion? Now, I might not have mentioned your rival passion to Christ, but I know one exists. You know how I know? Because our evangelistic fire doesn't burn like the one who is fixed on Christ in this text. I don't see in my own heart that one flame that burns with the fire to preach Christ or die the way I see it in Paul's life. I'm looking at Paul, a mere man. In so many senses of the word, no different than you or I. But in one sense, I've yet to see in my presence, and I know it's surely not true of myself, I don't burn with the same fire that Paul burns with. I want to, but I don't burn with the same fire. Pray that you'd be praying that for me. And I want you to know that I'm praying that for you. Let nothing, God forgive us, let nothing rival the gospel. Let nothing replace the proclamation of the gospel to others. The imprisonment of Paul had quite the reverse effect that it was intended to have. Paul was imprisoned so that they could squelch the gospel that he was proclaiming. But as they hoped, reality was something quite different. Rather, God sovereignly uses Paul's imprisonment to advance the name of Christ. The incarceration of Paul in the Roman prison didn't thwart the advance of the gospel any more than the arrest of Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. The adverse effect always happens when Christ's people are persecuted. These things were all a part of the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. And God uses 
these circumstances that Paul describes for his purpose. And it was through the gospel, through Paul, that the palace guards were converted. They all knew that Paul was a believer, but we know that some were converted. Paul was infecting with the gospel the very palace that sought to quiet him. Do you catch the irony of this? It happens over and over in Scripture. Those who seek to persecute, to squash, to snuff out those proclaiming the gospel, whether they are victorious in the killing of these Christians or not, is irrelevant. What we always know happens is the gospel is furthered. The gospel advances. It's proclaimed all the more boldly. Listen to the wording of the verse again. Look at verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. What was well known was Paul was in prison. Not for a criminal act, but for his preaching Christ. But he wasn't just in prison for Christ. He was in prison to Christ. Now he says, if we look back at the introduction of the letter, he calls himself Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. This theme I told you in the first week is going to bleed all the way through the letter. Here it is again, Paul saying he's in prison to Christ. Now, I want, I want you to see something, especially if you have the New American Standard, which I'm reading out of this morning. Verse 13 says, so that my imprisonment in, now, nod your head if the next three words are italicized in, in your Bible, New American Standard. It says, the cause of, right? You see that? And if your version says something similar to that, then this applies to your version as well. Those words... Anytime you see italics in the New American Standard, it means they've added those words to help our understanding. But I think in doing so this time, they've limited what Paul wrote. It is true that Paul was imprisoned for the cause of Christ. But what Paul is saying here is, so that my imprisonment in Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. What was known about Paul was not that he was imprisoned for preaching the gospel, though that was true, but that he was imprisoned to Christ. See, these guards were testing him. They were waiting for Paul to crack. But what they discovered was he is completely in Christ. He is a slave to Christ. That's what they discovered. So that my imprisonment in Christ had become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. Paul's physical imprisonment for Christ is just the fruit of his spiritual imprisonment to Christ. Paul uses this these words in chains, bondservant, imprisonment language throughout the letter to make clear his position in Christ. We will never accomplish anything for Christ until we are truly in Christ the way Paul was in Christ. We can't be partially in Christ and only accomplish a few things that we desire to accomplish for Christ. The deeper that we press into Christ, the more that we can expect Christ to use us for his namesake. If we will... Like Paul, enslave ourselves to Christ. We will see God work in us the same way that he worked in Paul. It is precisely this fear of being used by God 
for whatever means he sees fit that keeps so many from pressing into Christ. If I press more into Christ, then God has more right to my life. That's our mindset. And it's so foolish. Quit trying to hold God at arm's length. Be like Paul. Be enslaved to him. Be totally taken by God so that he can use you for whatever purpose he sees fit. And if it's like Paul to be in prison for the sake of God, be in prison. If it's like Paul, who we know ultimately is killed, then be killed. Gospel work, Paul knew full well, is dirty. It's costly. And so many of us think that I just can't afford to get dirty like that. I just can't afford that right now. That's not the attitude that we see Paul demonstrating for us, exemplifying for us in Philippians chapter 1. Grace Church, let's get dirty with the gospel. Let's get our hands dirty. Let's take some risk. Let's be willing to trust that God knows better for us than we know for ourselves. And that there's more joy in being used up for God's glory and for His name's sake than there is joy in us leading our lives the way we want to lead our lives. The influence that Paul had didn't just remain in the palace among the guards. Listen to what the rest of the verse says. But according to the text, it became well known to everyone else in Rome as well. How in the world can someone bound within the prison walls have impact on everyone outside the prison walls? Are you catching all the irony in Paul's letter to the Philippians? Let me ask the question again. How in the world can someone bound within the prison walls have impact on everyone outside the prison walls? I got an answer for you. God. God. That's how. Now, if I was mapping out for myself how I might see myself being most effective for the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would not include imprisonment. Because then I would be limited to the Praetorian Guard and fellow prisoners, which Paul didn't have because he was on house arrest. But somehow, Paul affects everyone else with the gospel as well. And though Caesar may have been lord over Rome, I think they quickly found out that Christ's lordship over Caesar was apparent in the life of Paul. Look at the verse one more time. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. So the progress of the gospel we see was in conversions. But we also see that the progress of the gospel was in the sanctification of the believers. Look with me in the next verse. The unconverted in Rome were not the only ones who were directly affected by the greater progress of the gospel in Paul's life. Verse 14. And that most of the brethren, that's fellow saints, that's believers in Christ, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Amen. May it be so. The brethren, the brothers and sisters in Christ 
were being sanctified by the gospel. Paul's imprisonment and the spread of the gospel also served as a means of renewed courage among the believers. Though Paul would have loved to be free to evangelize the world, he recognized the positive effects his imprisonment was having on the saints. The gospel was bigger than his personal role. And that's true of all of us. The gospel is not dependent on any man. But that is not an excuse for us to sit idly by expecting others to proclaim the name of Christ in our place. Look again at the text to identify what this newfound boldness calls. Trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. For those seeking to live missional lives, here's your biblical clue. Speak the word of God without fear. There's so much talk today about Missional living. I'm not opposed to that talk. So long as in the end, missional living looks like Paul describes in Philippians 1.14. That you would speak the word of God without fear. I hear so much about missional living, but very little about preaching the gospel. Well, here's the biblical example of what missional living looks like. Speak the word of God without fear. Those unwilling to speak of Christ, look for Alternative ways to affect people's lives. God's word tells us to speak the word of God without fear. If your single goal in life is to try to find ways to affect people with the love of Christ without proclaiming the love of Christ to them, you're wasting your time. When Christians aren't being affected by the gospel in their own lives through sanctification, they seek for creative ways to communicate the gospel to others without actually speaking the gospel. Speaking the word of God to the world is the dirty work that we talked about because it leads to awkwardness, ridicule, persecution. Every time that I have the opportunity, and I know that you can relate to this in the workplace, to speak the word of God to somebody at the workplace... Almost always it's received with awkwardness. It's just not what we talk about every day. And so when Christ becomes the topic of conversation and when the gospel becomes the topic of conversation, it becomes awkward. Why? Because it exposes their darkness. Who, who wants that? Nobody initially until they repent and give themselves to God. And then they take great delight in the fact that they were exposed by the light of Christ. But it's awkward. It leads to ridicule. Persecution. And I believe, Lord willing, that in my day, that here in the U.S., persecution will increase. But these creative, missional approaches... It's not dirty work. It's not the proclamation of the gospel. It's not speaking the word of God without fear. These creative missional approaches will bring praise from the world. It'll make us likable. But it's not going to change anybody. But the greater progress of the gospel isn't about us. It isn't about our likableness. 
It isn't about being praised by the world. It's about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm not opposed to creative missional ideas so long as they are accompanied with the proclamation of the gospel. As a matter of fact, the proclamation of the gospel should probably precede these creative missional ideas. Too many Christian cowards, if there is such a thing, hide behind this growing bad bandwagon called missional living rather than simply preaching Christ. Grace Church, let's be preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll worry about all those creative things later. So we know about the imprisonment, Paul's physical imprisonment. But what, what are all the circumstances that Paul's bringing to bear here? that lead to the greater progress of the gospel. This morning's sermon outline, and I know you're not following along with me probably on that, but it's not our typical verse-by-verse breakdown. So I want us to dissect the passage to really draw out of it the circumstances that Paul speaks of in verse 12. The circumstances that have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. We've already spoken to his physical imprisonment. But I think there's more circumstances that are coming to bear that Paul faced than just his imprisonment. Look with me in verses 15 through 17. Paul says this. Some, he's talking about speaking the word of God without fear. And then he says this. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But some also out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. Listen to this. Thinking to cause Paul distress in his imprisonment. So I think there's another situation besides Paul's physical imprisonment. There's these selfishly ambitious preachers that Paul has to deal with. Paul was faced with those, according to verse 17, that were thinking to cause him distress. These men were also described as ones who are preaching Christ even from envy and strife and doing so out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motive. So who are these people? And why are they trying to distress Paul? When Paul uses words like envy and strife, he says they were preaching even from envy and strife. Well, I found at least on two other occasions where those words were tied together. When Paul uses words like envy and strife elsewhere, as he does in Philippians chapter 1, they are terms used to describe unbelievers. Listen to the words envy and strife. Listen for those words as I read Romans chapter 1. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. Listen carefully. Full of envy Murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Did you hear the words envy and strife? You know what that's a description of, right? Somebody who has vehemently set themselves in opposition to God. It's a description of an unbeliever. A similar list is found in Galatians chapter 5, which I think we'll look at in a couple of weeks as we pray together. 
Just a little bit later in the text that we looked at this morning. We'll find those same two words describing somebody who is not walking in the spirit, but relying on the flesh. The point is that these words are used to describe those not in Christ, those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word envy may be at the root of this attempt to distress Paul. Jealousy is one of the basest expressions of human fallenness. If that's a word. Whether they are weak-minded believers who have not yet, excuse me, who have yet to learn true humility and are selfishly preaching the gospel, thinking themselves better than Paul, or whether they are truly unconverted and are simple pawns for the furtherance of the gospel is not abundantly clear in our text. But what I do know is, I would not want that description that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 1 to be true of me. Because when we see that description used in other places in Scripture, what we do know is, it's a reference to an unbeliever. It does appear that they thought God was displeased with Paul. And therefore, he had been in prison. And they themselves still free, thinking that they are maybe more favored by God. Perhaps the most logical understanding of this group is that they were Christians in Rome, not converted under Paul's ministry. And upon Paul's arrival, they feel threatened by his presence, fearing that others may choose to follow him rather than themselves. Therefore, they took great delight in his imprisonment. Because it means that any new converts would be theirs. And that they would save their existing flock from the church hopping, so to say. It seems that they may have been trying to grow their own kingdom rather than being joyfully exhausted for the progress of the gospel as Paul was. They missed the greater opportunity for the progress of the gospel that Paul received in prison. That is, to preach Christ. Paul had that advantage to the palace guards and ultimately to preach Christ to Caesar in his defense of the gospel. And we know, as we saw earlier, that it went to everyone else as well. Paul knew that it was for this very purpose that he had been divinely appointed. Let me say this, because I've heard this discussion at the table with the elders concerning Grace Church. We not only welcome the proclamation of the gospel by others in this community, we pray for it. We long for it. But this group here in Rome did not receive Paul well. They were selfishly ambitious and they sought to cause Paul distress. But ultimately, like we see in everything else that Paul writes, they brought him joy. They brought Paul joy. Listen with me in verse 17. The former, that's these men that we're talking about, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Verse 18. What then? What am I going to do about this? Is what Paul's saying. What should I do about this? Here's what Paul says. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Does that not strike you as odd? That here's these men preaching Christ from selfish ambition, even from envy and strife with unpure motives. And Paul says, I rejoice. Why? Because at least 
Christ is being proclaimed. What did Paul care more about? The church that he's building, that he would receive great praise for? Or just the simple progress of the gospel that Christ was being proclaimed? Do you see the, the, the center of Paul's heart? It's Christ. It's the proclamation of the gospel. That's all he cared about. The final circumstance that I want us to see this morning. Yes, Paul was in prison. Yes, he had to deal with these selfishly ambitious preachers. But I also want you to see that Paul faced the prospect of death. Look with me in verses 19 and 20. Let's finish the end of verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now, as always, be exalted in my body. Now listen to what he says. Whether by life or by death. Or by death. Paul knew that it was a real possibility that his life could end. Upon his arrival in prison, the threat of death was surely announced. Paul was to stand trial to defend the gospel. And he writes the Philippians to inform them that he is willing to even die for this great cause. So long as Christ is exalted, Paul is willing to die. The prospect of death was a very real circumstance that Paul was neither wavered by nor feared. In fact, Paul would welcome his death for the exaltation of Christ and the furtherance of the gospel. We know, Paul says later in the text, which we'll look at next week, when he says to depart and be with Christ, that's very much better. It's very much better that Paul would rather die and be with Christ. So he didn't fear death. He looked forward to it. Many of you may know the story of Jim Elliott, a missionary to Ecuador in the 1950s. I want you to see when Paul says in verse 12 that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And then when he says again also in verse 20, whether by life or by death, he meant meant that even his death would be for the greater progress of the gospel. Jim Elliott's death compounded the work of missions globally. If God had not sovereignly taken Jim's life, many would not have traveled overseas for the sake of the gospel. Do you know that the immediate response to Jim Elliott's death in less than one month after his death and the four other men who died in the jungles of Ecuador, there was the surrender of hundreds of lives to global missions. After the news of his martyrdom, made it to the States, many young people gave themselves to global missions. And even today, the legacy of Jim Elliott, if you read one of his books, I recommend Through Gates of Splendor, his life is contagious to missions. Like Paul, Jim Elliott also saw the greater progress of the gospel, whether by life or by death. Paul only had to look to Christ to see this same example. The circumstances that Paul talks about for the greater progress of the gospel, 
were the same as those of Jesus Christ. I want you to see that Paul's greatest example was Christ. Did not Christ suffer at the feet of Roman magistrates himself? Did not Christ face the same persecution at the hands of his own countrymen? Those who turned Paul over to Rome? Did not Christ receive slander from a jealous religious cohort? Was Christ not the victim of false accusations? Was anger not breathed toward Christ for exposing the selfish ambition of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Did not Christ suffer for the sake of his father? Was Christ not obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? We know that he was. That Christ was crucified. Paul is gazing directly at Christ as he writes Philippians chapter 1. And is filled with joy as he sees his Savior appoint him to prison for the defense of the gospel and the greater progress of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Do you see the obvious joy that Paul had? Do you see the joy? He says, back-to-back statements, In this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Anytime Paul repeats statements for emphasis, we should perk up and pay attention. Paul's joy stemmed from Christ, especially delighting in these things that had happened to Paul. Paul had great joy in his imprisonment. We've already seen that. Paul's joy wasn't in his actual imprisonment, but he took joy in being imprisoned to Christ and for Christ. But I think there's two things that I want us to see mentioned specifically in the text that I want us to give attention to this morning that we see Paul taking great joy in. In verses 18 and 19. One, Paul took great joy in the proclamation of the gospel. It makes perfect sense that Paul would receive joy from the emboldened Christians Paul speaks of in verse 18. But for joy to be expressed despite those who are preaching from wrong motives, that can be a bit perplexing. Again, Paul's joy wasn't in those preaching from selfish ambition, but rather that Christ was being proclaimed. I believe that there was pain there for Paul from the false motive preachers. But his perspective allowed him to have real joy in the preaching of Christ. Paul saw the big picture. He saw Christ being proclaimed and the carrying out of God's great purpose to glorify himself through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. In this, I take great delight. I have joy in my heart that Christ is proclaimed. There is another reason for Paul's rejoicing, however. Paul also is rejoicing in the salvation of God. Whether in pretense or truth, Christ is, it, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For what? Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. 
Now, here's another one of those opportunities that I want us to pull out of the text and see. I want you to see the terminology that's used here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. He says this, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Look at that word, deliverance. I think the King James gets it right here. Though deliverance is appropriate to a large degree, it does not capture the whole meaning of Paul's intent here. For I know that this will turn out for my salvation, is what the King James says. And I think that's a better rendering of the text. I know that deliverance and salvation mean the same thing in so many senses of the word. If Paul's life is spared from death, he has been delivered. I get that. But ultimately, Paul's life is not spared from death. What Paul's trying to communicate is that regardless of the outcome of his imprisonment, whether physical freedom or whether physical death, he will be saved by God. It's salvation that's communicated here. In fact, the Greek word used here is soteria. Does that ring a bell? You may recognize it. It's where we get our doctrine of salvation from. The word soteriology comes from this root. Paul is implying here that he is rejoicing because the circumstance only leaves him two very great options. Paul says, fantastic. I've been in prison for Christ. Now only two things can happen. I can be delivered physically. Praise be to God. Or they kill me. And I enter into the saving rest of God. Praise be to God. Paul says, I take great joy in this. We'll dig into this a little bit further next week. But the wording here is important for us to see. That both are intended in Paul's wording. He doesn't know. God hadn't given him a glimpse of the future to show him that he's going to be delivered from prison. And God hasn't shown him that he's going to die here. So what Paul says, very safely, yet very appropriately, is that I know that this will turn out for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What joy Paul had, thinking that through the prayers of the saints and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that he would either be delivered from the captivity of the Romans or delivered from the captivity of his earthly body and be with Christ in glory. Again, Paul looks to Christ for the source of his joy. He is fixed on the gospel and sees the salvation provided to him in Christ. Paul's locked in on Christ here. When he says he's a slave, he means he's a slave. He's locked in. Not just his gaze, not just his spiritual meditation, but his very life. And the joy that we see Paul have we first see in Christ. Paul's just getting a taste of the joy of Christ. Christ himself had already endured such hardships with the same joy that Paul's enjoying these hardships with. Christ too was at the mercy of godless men and yet simultaneously eternally safe in the cup of God's own hand. Was Christ put to death by men? Yes. Did they have their way with Christ's body? Yes. Was Christ in control the entire time? By all means. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's what Paul was doing. The author and perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy. This is Christ. Christ who for the joy set before him. 
endured the cross. What? He endured the cross with joy? Yes. Despising the shame, Christ has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The immediate effects of the gospel lived by Paul in Rome and written about in chapter 1 to the Philippians was evident. It was evident that Paul had the very joy of Christ in him. And the effects of that were great. The effects were the greater progress of the gospel. The effects were unregenerate hearts were awakened. The effects were the saints had a deeper trust in the Lord. Verse 14. The effects were there was greater courage by the believers to preach the word of God without fear. Verse 14. The effects were there was greater joy in Christ by Paul himself. Verse 18. And the effects were the exaltation of Christ. Verse 20. Whether by life or by death, Christ will be exalted. But what does the gospel lived out the way Paul lived out the gospel? What does the gospel lived out by us at Grace Church look like? How do we apply? How do we emulate Paul today? Our application may be, get, may be getting old here at Grace to the ear, but it's fresh to the heart every time. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Paul was locked in on Christ. He saw Christ's circumstances and he knew that his weren't greater than Christ. Paul was locked in on Christ. He looked at Christ's joy in enduring the cross. Therefore, with great, cho- with great joy, Paul endured the circumstances that he was faced with. Look to Christ. Number two, live for the gospel. Live for the gospel. Let the gospel be your single passion in life. In Grace Church, Speak the word of God without fear. Proclaim Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that our circumstances would turn out for the greater progress of the gospel. We ask these things in Jesus' name.